Welcome to Heroine City, the podcast championing women in history. My name is Lindsay and today we will be talking about the self-made 16th century Midlander who went from Squire's daughter to become the second wealthiest woman in England, second only to Elizabeth I. Pioneering architect, trailblazer and all-round badass, today on Heroine City we are excited to be discussing the formidable and fascinating Bess of Hardwick. our expert today we have the wonderful professor lisa hopkins who is a professor of english at sheffield hallam university she edited a collection of essays called best of hardwick new perspectives for manchester university press and also co-edited a collection of essays on bess's descendants the cavendishes of bolsover and welbeck called a companion to the cavendishes published by arc humanities press so we're very excited thank you for being here lisa it's a pleasure so I'm going to kick us right off because I have a lot to ask you about Bess of Hardwick. But first of all, if it's all right with you, for our listeners that haven't experienced anything about Bess of Hardwick or maybe know a little bit about her, but not a lot, could you please give us a nutshell version of who she was, her life and, and why she's important? So she is, in a way, the ultimate self-made woman at a time when it really wasn't very easy to be a self-made woman. She rises from being the daughter of a, an obscure and impoverished squire to being the premier countess of England and the grandmother of a potential queen of England. Uh, that didn't actually happen, but it, it perfectly credibly could have done. But what really interests me about Bess is that she does all this not by challenging gender expectations of the time, but by kind of maxing out what it meant to be a woman in the period. So for a woman in the period, there's only really one career option, and that is to get married. And Bess gets married in spades. She gets married four separate times, and, and each husband is richer than the last. So I, I think that's really interesting as a kind of a career ladder, if you like. Only thing that you could do when you were married was have children, and Bess does that pretty effectively too. She has eight children, of whom only six survive to adulthood. It's much more common for a woman to die in childbirth and for a man to have four wives than for a woman to have four husbands. And the other thing that absolutely fascinates me about Bess is that the only respectable way of passing your time for a woman was needlework. And Bess does needlework as well, but she does it like nobody else does it. She does needlework as a, a way of expressing herself, of imprinting herself on the, the various properties that she builds and designs. So she's a kind of homemaker, but a homemaker on acid. And that's what I find so fascinating about her. She doesn't go away and put on armour, or and she's not the Virgin Queen or anything like that. She just shows you what the options were for women's lives in the period and, and how far you could go with them. And people sometimes mock her because there's no library at Hardwick Hall. That's very often observed. So I think, oh, well, she, you know, she doesn't write. She doesn't express herself. She does express herself. She expresses herself through textiles. And incredibly, almost all of those textiles still survive. That's the other amazing thing about Bess. We can see her life in a way that we can't see most people's lives because 
hard recall is this astonishing survival from the, the period. I love a few things that you said there, the fact that she maxed out what was available to her. I think she was an absolute pragmatist, wasn't she? She knew exactly what the situation was whenever that was and just did what she could within that structure. And that in itself just shows often times she flew under the radar as well within that situation so that she didn't draw too much attention to herself. But it's very interesting that you say actually her choice of putting her stamp on the world is still in existence today which is really fascinating. So although women's pursuits in quotations actually has had the staying power, her dynastic legacy, you say the tapestries in the buildings and the, and the estates that she built. So that's very interesting. Thank you. So I should actually, I'm obviously fascinated because of everything you've just said. And also I'm from Leicestershire. So I came across uh -huh. Bess having visited Hardwick Hall, but also then realising that she was connected to the Grey family. And I'd grown up going to see the ruin at Bradgate Park my whole life. So at this point, when I'm being told about her connection and being in service to the Duchess of Suffolk and the Grey family, I had one of those sort of goosebump moments and went, oh my goodness. So she's completely connected to all that history that I learned as a child that fascinated me. That was the reason I was into history in the first place. So that was when I started to realise, um, one, how interesting her life had been and how long and how much she'd been entangled in extremely pivotal moments in the Tudor timeline. But I didn't know her name. I didn't really know who she was. And, and I couldn't fathom the two things. I couldn't believe that she was so integral in all of these stories. But yet I didn't really know her name. I knew that she'd married four times and I knew she'd become a countess. And that was about all I knew. So for me, she then sparked this, this idea that obviously women in history need to be championed. We need to talk about them. We need to know about them. And that's why we're here. What made you study Bess and tell us about the sources? So I've always been interested in anything to do with the Tudors. Uh, and I think that's because a very long time ago, somebody gave me the uh, Ladybird book of Queen Elizabeth I, uh, which I believe was the first book that I ever learnt to read on my own. And that, that was just it, really. I mean, anything now. I'm, I'm just a, a slave and a, a sucker to uh, to anything Tudor. But also, I, I'm living in Sheffield and teaching at Sheffield Hallam University. And all our buildings are named after the grandson-in-law of Bess of Hardwick, because her granddaughter, Alethea Talbot, was essentially the heiress of Sheffield. Sheffield was her dowry when she married Thomas Howard, Earl of Arundel. At work, all the buildings are called things like Arundel, Howard, Norfolk and Surrey. And when I first came, which is a very long time ago now, when I first moved to Sheffield, there's a kind of Sheffield joke that people do at meetings. So you always used to have to do that thing about ladies and gentlemen, welcome, there's no fire alarm scheduled. And at work, there always used to be this joke and you would then say, and the toilets are in Surrey, <laughs> which means the Surrey building. And so when I first came, I used to start thinking, I used to wonder, what's that about? Why is everything called Norfolk Talbot, Howard, Arundel and Surrey? And it's because of Bess's granddaughter's husband. And it's always irritated me that there's not one single structure, to my knowledge, called after the granddaughter herself. And she was called Alethea. So I, I guess it's not the most obvious and simple and easy name, but nevertheless, it was her property. Uh, she brought it into that marriage. So you can't really live in Sheffield and not be aware of this or interested. You can't drive down to London without seeing Hardwick Hall looming up uh, on the left-hand side of the M1. You know, it's it's a, an absolutely iconic site. And Bolsover Castle, which was built by her descendants five miles further along the ridge. So it's she's the air we breathe, really, around here. I love that. And, see, and it makes sense that I'm here now and having had her inspire me because 
I'm just down the road from Sheffield. So Alethea is also someone that I'm very fascinated in. Maybe we'll bring you back to talk about her on another podcast, because again, she's another person that people don't really know about. Let's carry on. So with Bess, the sources, so you've been deep diving into the correspondence. So Bess was a big letter writer. Am I right? So yes, not so much me. That That is a project that was done by Alison Wiggins at the University of Glasgow, but certainly I've read the letters. She was a big letter writer and she received a lot of letters. And the the range of things that she's interested in are quite fascinating. One of the, the things that I used to do, I used to co-organise an annual conference in Cyprus and Bess received letters about Cyprus and what was happening there and the Battle of Lepanto interested in everything and her son Henry Cavendish her eldest son who I'm sorry to say she always refers to as my bad son Henry but he seems to have woken up one morning as not many people did at the time and he seems to have thought to himself I shall go to Constantinople and he did he he trotted off to Constantinople with a servant who kept a diary and he brought back things from there and he brought presumably news and stories and even if Henry didn't talk to his mum I expect the servant did so she's astonishingly connected and the, the letters really show that breadth of interest. My self-study has come from mostly Mary S. Lavelle's book about Bess, which is the First Lady of Chatsworth. And mm. I think what's interesting in that is she talks about at one point, and we should probably start at the beginning with the first court case and the first struggle to keep the money that was hers right from the start, which I think was quite formative for her in her life timeline. She says at one point she gets to writing letters to all her contacts at the point where William Cavendish passes away and she becomes in debt to the Crown and she starts to write to people and actually... Mary S. Lavelle says women didn't do that. They weren't expected to do that. No. So she always throws caution to the wind and just does what she needs to do when she needs to do it. Doesn't really worry about whether it's right or wrong. And actually, she succeeds because of it, doesn't she? Yes, she's never quiet. A woman who refuses to be silenced. But yes, because she didn't have a library, some people sometimes ignore the way that she uses the written word. And the other thing about her that I think is very important is she learns to do accounts. Not that I can do accounts myself, but I'm sure it's a very valuable skill if you wish to become, in effect, a millionaire. So William Cavendish, her second husband, seems to teach her that skill. And then he lets her go. He he trusts her to do it by herself. So she learns skills that are not traditionally female skills. Uh, and she practices them as well uh, alongside living an absolutely typical, in, in some ways, an almost parodically typical woman's life in the period. That's right. And we shouldn't underestimate that. You know, her, her second husband, William Cavendish, definitely saw that she had that talent when it came to architect and land. What he taught her, but then took off the reins at the point where he could see she could more than handle it. It's evident, isn't it, in the housekeeping books where he signs off the beginning of their marriage and then all of a sudden Bess's signature takes over yeah. at the age of 21 or so. Can't underestimate. She had a, a husband that understood her talent and let her explore them and grow within that. Okay, so let's start with the first husband, shall we? And also maybe her parents in their formative years. So we know she was a squire's daughter, correct me if I'm wrong, but they weren't on the breadline, they had land. The trouble was, wasn't it, that there was always debt involved with that. Please explain a bit about what we think maybe made her so tenacious when it came to money and managing the house and the estate. The, the big blows that have died young and leaving her brother as a ward, and it's very bad news to be a ward in early modern England because insensitive to compare it to slavery but you you don't own yourself if you are a ward somebody else owns you and can dispose of you in marriage and quite a lot of early modern literature represents the, the difficulties of being a ward there's a great play called the Yorkshire Tragedy which is all about 
a ward getting married off against their will. So once that's happened, once the, the brother has become a ward, the, the family is in trouble. And I think that is when she first starts to learn to contest things and to see if you don't help yourself, nobody else is going to help you. And her first husband is also very young, almost certainly too young to have determined his own marriage. That must have been some kind of arrangement with property in mind. And I think she learns from that that the importance of autonomy, of steering your own course, Conversely, if the worst thing you can be as a ward, in some ways financially, almost the best thing you can be as a widow, because as a widow, you automatically get a third of your husband's property. So she moves from having a husband and brother who are wards to, to being a widow. And I think that must have been a bit of an eye opener to her, that good position to be in. And we're talking 15, something like that? Well, we don't know because we're not sure exactly when she was born. There's two different accounts of when she's born, but she's young. Right. They're both young. And that's interesting. Not only marrying that young and then being a widow that young, but then also going to court and fighting a court case at that age yeah. and winning. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And she's done all of this before she goes into service to the Gray family at Bragate House, which I find really interesting. I've always wondered, it's just one of those meandering wonders, whether the Duchess of Suffolk kind of saw something in her at this point because she'd heard about her and then came to be in service to the family. I wonder whether there was some sort of affinity, you know, women looking out for each other at that point, because Mary S. Lavelle does argue that they were affectionate with each other. And the Duchess of Suffolk, Frances Gray, she's one of those people that isn't really spoken about a lot because she was looked over for the line of succession. But then when she is spoken about, it's not necessarily in a positive light. What do you say about her relationship with Frances Gray? So Bess calls her eldest daughter Frances, which does look as though there is a kind of bond of affection. Very interestingly, uh, she keeps a picture of Lady Jane Gray in her bedroom for the rest of her life. And I, I'm sure that does testify to some kind of interest and emotional commitment. And when Catherine Gray gets into big trouble because she's secretly married and pregnant, it seems to be best that Catherine Gray turns to. So yes, I think there, there's, there's certainly a, a relationship there. And interestingly, I think it may perhaps have helped configure the way that Bess is with Arbella. So Bess was very keen to engineer a really grand marriage for her middle daughter, Elizabeth. She marries her to Charles Stuart, Earl of Lennox, who has a potential claim to both the English and the Scottish thrones. But I don't think Bess ever really pushes that claim. It's sometimes suggested she's very ambitious for Arbella, that she builds Hardwick as a palace, but I don't think she does. The iconography of Hardwick is not about Arbella. I think Lady Jane Grey's fate and Lady Catherine's and Lady Mary Grey's fates, for that matter, are a really good warning to anybody who's thinking about putting up a young girl as a potential candidate for Queen of England. And perhaps that puts the brakes on Bess's ambitions for Arbella. Bess is certainly dead keen for Arbella to be Countess of Lennox, which she saw as her right, but I don't think she's that keen for her to be Queen. And I think this is towards the ends of, of Elizabeth I's reign. And she's seen a lot happen during that reign, including the fate of all three Grey sisters, who I always find fascinating that they didn't, each one didn't learn from the one before, but, you know, they yes. were different personalities. So I guess, I don't know. And But but the irony is, is that, you know, there's it's so, Arbella Stewart's fate does mirror Catherine Grey's. And even to the point of the family member that she has a clandestine marriage with. And I always think, people don't learn they just don't learn because each person thinks that their situation is different but I think you're right I think um, Bess for all her determination and someone that wasn't going to keep quiet or be polite or, or follow a line when she needed something uh, or she needed to protect her family or her wealth I think she also knew when not to step over a line too 
And I think that that was, yeah. you know, like you say, she never allowed Arbella to go to court in, until she was a lot older. Because Arbella wanted to get out into the world and Bess was protecting her for right or wrong. Okay, we've got the formative years happening. She's realised that if you want anything, you've got to grab hold of it with your own hands and stand up and be counted. And it's actually worked. So now she's at Bradgate House with the Grey family. And I would say that the Duchess of Suffolk would have had some sort of help in steering the first marriage, which was a very good marriage, William Cavendish, at the right time, would you say? Tell us a little bit about that and then maybe move on to the next marriage. Because this is the thing with Bess, is that it's from one <laughs> amazing saga to the next. It's not just one little moment, it's just continual. So over to you. So she marries Sir William Cavendish. It is a, a good marriage. And uh, one of the things that people forget about Bess is that she was a very good stepmother. So William Cavendish brought daughters from his first marriage and she is affectionate to them. It may be that one of them was in some way differently abled or that there's some kind of narrative about that child but Bess is a good a caring and affectionate stepmother and you can see the change in the language in the letters that starts to talk about them with more interest she's always good to the women around her she's very good to one of her sisters for instance and it's not every self-made woman that takes care of other women but Bess does so she acquires his stepchildren and they then go on to produce eight children amongst them of whom two don't make it, two daughters don't make it past babyhood, but the other six grow up and he teaches her to do accounts. They seem to have had a companionate and affectionate marriage. And what he also does is he in some ways kickstarts her use of embroidery because one of the things that William Cavendish is doing is he's going around with Thomas Cromwell and his retinue, stripping old monasteries and bringing back a lot of ecclesiastical textiles. And that's where she gets the material from to start her big needlework project, her hangings. You can't do that unless you've got you know, really quite significant quantities of textiles. That's where they're coming from. That's always seems to be fascinating. Those textiles have their own history. They are formally monastic and being repurposed for interior decoration. So he's a good husband. For 10 years of their marriage but towards the end of it he's accused of financial wrongdoing and he was very possibly guilty actually and so what should have set her on the path to financial security suddenly plunges her into deep deep trouble and I think probably when she least expects it and she's left a young widow with children and no money and a big cloud hanging over her husband's name. Right. And at this point, Vell argues they saw it coming, um, as everyone did. We're talking about the switch then from Henry VIII dying, Edward VI. And then we have the switch then from Protestant to Catholic when Mary Tudor um, yes. is on the throne. And what happens? And obviously we have the Lady Jane Grey episode of obviously must have affected it, but they all saw it coming. And at this point is where she, what you could say, is flipped some of this wealth that was coming from the dissolution of the monasteries. Up north, and they bought the land that now is Chatsworth House, that is Polder Bay. Lavelle argues that best that land was connected to her family, so she knew about this land, and that's yeah. that she had a big say in that. Pushing everything up north and out the way of London, and all the, the goings-on, and all the trouble that was happening there. But they couldn't avoid it. It's interesting that she then had to, again, roll up her sleeves and fight for that money so that she didn't have to sell up the houses and wind down what they built together. She's at this point asking for help, as we mentioned earlier, in the form of letters, and then gets help, or at least gets to the point where she figures it out so that the debt that's been called in is payable in a way that she can manage, and then kind of keeps her head down until Elizabeth then is on the throne. Yes. What changes that, do you think? Is that the switch from Catholic to Protestant, or is, does she have a connection to Elizabeth? How does that work? So 
I think the big thing that Mary Lovell's book does, it's a very good book in general, but the really big thing that it changed was our perception of the third husband, Sir William Sentlow, because before that book, it was like Sir William Sentlow, who he, and what Mary Lovell does is show you exactly who he was and why he is important. And I think in some ways, the most useful of Bess's husbands. And because he had been in the service of Elizabeth when she was a princess, and he's called in to be asked some questions. It would have been very easy for him to uh, incriminate Elizabeth. And instead, he keeps quiet. And when Elizabeth comes to the throne, I think she remembers that. And she's very pleased about that marriage. She says, I've always been very pleased to, to see Bess in the past. But I should be even more pleased to see her as my Lady Sentlow. And I think to be Lady Sentlow was a very valuable position, uh, apart from the the fact that he seems to have adored Bess. He showers her with presents. He's incredibly good to her, her children. Uh, and he leaves her all his money. Uh, I, I'm sure she missed him because there does seem to have been an extremely affectionate marriage, but he he, he did her a lot of good uh, in the six years that they were married. Again, and this is something interesting that um, Lavelle also says. Um, sorry, you say Lovell. How did well, you... I, do, but I don't know. I've never met her. I don't know okay. how it's... Uh... <laughs> I'm so... Something else that she mentions is the fact at this point, Bess is around 30-ish, you know, we don't know for sure, but around that kind of age with children, with this debt to the crown. All right, she's still got the land and the, the estates, but, you know, she's not necessarily the catch that someone like William St. Lowe could have, he could have taken his pick. He was the head of the Queen's Guard. Elizabeth loved him, uh, or at least was very respectful, mutually respectful of each other. And he had saved her, according to the book. He could have taken this pick and he picked Bess. And like you say, it seems to have been really affectionate. So that in itself, I think, points to the fact that Bess wasn't without her charm. She must have been charismatic. She must have been someone that, you know, he wanted to be around. And I think that sometimes gets forgotten because obviously as a woman and as a, a dynast who's built these estates, people think, oh, she was manipulative. That word comes up or negative aspects. And I think that actually... She just was a woman who understood the lay of the land and was able to make it work in any way. I mean, these two had a definite affection. And I think, yes, he was a good pick, but at the same time, he picked her. Let's not forget that. OK, so she's married to St. Lowe. That's a very short but a very interesting moment in her life because there was a poison attempt at one point. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. So his brother, Edward, seems to have attempted to poison both uh, Sentlow and Bess and perhaps did eventually succeed in poisoning Sentlow who dies very suddenly and unexpectedly and I, which I think was a big blow to, to Bess. It's always difficult to look back in time and try and diagnose people's medical conditions but there was certainly bad blood between the two brothers and quite interestingly the, the Sentlow's mother seems to have believed that one of her sons was out to get the other and that, that, must, that must take us a fair amount of doing actually to convince a mother that her son is a an attempting poisoner. That's a rather surprising uh, episode in her life and it does also bring her close to accusations of the, of the supernatural which don't get levelled against Bess herself but they do get levelled against uh, Edward Sentner because he's mixed up with somebody who thinks they are a, an astrologer and can mess around with magic of various kinds. I find that that chapter of her life specifically is the one where you think, well, this is the pantomime moment. You have the real dashing, super tall, William St. Lowe, head of the Queen's Guard, who's saved Elizabeth I from the chopping block. And then they marry and it's all, all happily ever after. And then, but then the evil brother comes along with the poison, you know, and you're just like, what? How is, but that's how it was. It's, it's, I find that really interesting but yes on to the next chapter so after that happens because 
because what was that time period? That six years of marriage, yes. Six, okay. You think at this point she's done. You're like, well, she doesn't need to get married again because she's got all the St. Low land as well as her own estates. And at this point, they're doing well because Elizabeth's on the throne. She's been in service. It seems to be all working and she doesn't need to get married again. She's had three husbands at this point and she doesn't, she doesn't need it. But she does. So what's going on there? Well, I think perhaps one of the reasons that she marries George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, is because it's not just a single marriage, it's a triple marriage. So her two children, uh, my bad son, Henry, uh, marries Grace Talbot, a woman in, in whom he seems to have had no interest whatsoever. And in the middle of the next century, Bess's great granddaughter, Jane Cavendish, uh, wrote a poem about Bess in which she reproaches Bess for leaving her money to the wrong son, as Jane sees it. But she, she says Henry Winches loved more than his wife. And that certainly does seem to be the case. That was a spectacularly unsuccessful marriage. It produced no children, although uh, Henry Cavendish was apparently known as the, the, the common bull of Derbyshire because he fathered so many illegitimate children. But that didn't work. And at the same time, Bess's daughter, Mary, her youngest child, the only one still unmarried, marries George Talbot's second son, Gilbert Talbot. Now, that didn't look like all that brilliant a marriage when it occurred, because what's a second son? But when the eldest son, Francis, died not very long afterwards, that does become a really coup, because it means that not only is Bess going to be Countess of Shrewsbury, but her daughter will be the next Countess of Shrewsbury. And to be Countess of Shrewsbury is something that is the premier earldom in England. So I think it's partly that she doesn't just marry herself off, but she seizes this opportunity to, to marry her two children into a wealthy and stable family, a family which, again, Elizabeth seems to have trusted very much because when Elizabeth looks around, somebody who can look after Mary Queen of Scots, who's ultra loyal, who's rich, who's stable, she thinks of Shrewsbury. Yes, and and it's an honour, and they they see it as an honour at that point. So we should say, so Mary Queen of Scots at this point is in England and and looking for help from Elizabeth the first, and actually what happens is she's taken under house arrest and for the next is it 15 years um the Shrewsbury's yeah yeah, thereabouts the Shrewsbury's keep her in their states as a queen should be kept this isn't bread and water this is a queen being kept and so she goes to the richest family at that point and 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 obviously it's an honor to be trusted in this way and to look after another queen however it very quickly turns into something that's very stressful something but very stressful indeed i think one forgets when one looks at the 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 really splendid homes that the the talbots and the cavendishes had they did have to double as prisons sheffield castle sheffield manor places where mary could be confined even chatsworth we don't see now what chatsworth looked like to best because it was extensively remodeled in the 17th century but it had to serve as a place where mary could be locked up and even their townhouse in buxton a place where you're supposed to go for the spa that to be turned into a prison as well. I think it must have been extremely difficult for them. And we know that as a result of Mary's presence in the household, the whole Shrewsbury establishment is riddled with spies. There's lots of references to spies. You've got Arbella at one point referring to my old spy. And of course, there comes a point where Arbella herself is worth spying on. So I think it's no surprise that that marriage starts to go wrong, the, the Shrewsbury marriage, because you can't possibly imprison a queen for 15 years and it's all kind of hunky-dory but it's also been suggested and again difficult to diagnose people retrospectively it has been suggested that Shrewsbury starts to suffer from dementia and he certainly does appear to have become pretty paranoid 
in his old age. And I'm sorry to say that world events are showing us at the moment that elderly men can sometimes become very strange and paranoid. Definitely. And I think the financial strain and the estrangement of his wife and then the fighting of the children and everything that just came at that point, because at the beginning, the letters do show that the two of them had quite an affectionate, again, marriage at the start. Then this happens and it just takes a turn, doesn't it? But to begin with, as you were talking about the needlework, you said Bess was very talented when it came to expressing herself in needlework. But the other person that gets an yeah. accolade is Mary Queen of Scots. And both of them are expressing themselves and Mary especially has a need to do that. So did you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, they do seem to have been to have sat next to each other and busily embroidered away. And Mary had been taught uh, various kinds of needlework techniques by her first mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, particularly the business of using slips, which are little images of flowers that you affix to fabric. And they, they produce some extraordinary programmatic and emblematic needlework projects together, which again still survive. And it is a, absolutely a way of expressing yourself. And I, I talk to people about needlework at various times. You can kind of see their eyes glaze over and they think, needlework. But actually, you need to wake up and think, needlework? Because one of Mary's cushions that she sent to the Duke of Norfolk was actually used as evidence in his treason trial. So one needs to pay proper attention to that needlework and what is going on in it and study it very closely. And some of it is so fascinating. Like Mary Queen of Scots sitting in the middle of Derbyshire producing something called Bird of America. Not everybody embroiders a panel called Bird of America, but <laughs> it, it does show what needlework is to them. It's a way of processing visual images it's a way of processing information of expressing yourself of sending covert messages at the one of elizabeth as a marmalade cat you couldn't call elizabeth a marmalade cat to her face but you can sew her. Yeah, just about. This is what's interesting. Like you say, these are still in existence. That's the thing, as people might say, oh, needlework and just have visions of silly pastimes in, in Jane Austen novels. But that wasn't it. This is a point where everything mattered. And coding, any way that you had to express yourself that could be picked up by someone else in metaphor or whatever. And like you say, it was one of the, the main reasons why Northumberland met his end. Fascinating. So we've got the two of them together. Then it starts, as with all things, when there's a lot of tension, a lot of people whispering about what's going on, a lot of hearsay and information being passed between different sources to different people constantly, it starts to get very stressful. And if you imagine you've got the Queen, Queen of Scots, Mary, and then you've got Bess, and then you've got Tolbert, it starts to become a bit of a nightmare. So the family sort of becomes factions, doesn't it? It's split a little bit. I think, again, Bess being very pragmatic understands the lay of the land and starts to pull away a little bit. Is that right? Well, effectively, she leaves Shrewsbury. And I'm not really sure she could have done very much more than that. But at that point, it becomes apparent that he and she have completely different attitudes to marriage and property because she reckoned that she owned Chatsworth and Hardwick. And at one point, she actually says that Shrewsbury owes her money. And it's almost no woman in the 16th century could have even considered that her husband could owe them money. What's that about? But she regards herself as an independent financial entity. And he doesn't. He'd copped the lot when he married her. And so extraordinary episodes when he almost set, lays siege to Chatsworth and you get the, the sons being kind of chased around the country and people being refused admittance to other people's houses. It, it is all very dramatic and odd, but at the heart of it lies that different understanding of a position of woman in marriage. And he complains that she acts almost she with a husband. And I think she would have thought, yeah, absolutely. I have got to act as I with a husband. Well, and rightly so in the sense that from our modern view, we, we see that she has built this herself 
over the years with her blood, sweat and tears. She's fought for it on several occasions and won and then kept her family together and kept everything together, built these things. It's her ideas that have gone into the bricks and mortar. It's her hard work. So from her perspective, it's hers. She built it. But like you say, it was always a given that that wasn't yours at the point of marriage, which is why people always say, well, why did she get married? It was for the family and the legacy and the dynastic ideas that she had and looking after everyone because that was what she did. She looked after the wealth and she looked after the family and hopefully she felt like it would carry on after she'd gone. But there were a few spanners in the works. What I find fascinating is she thought that, she felt that. They had an argument about the fact that this wasn't normal, a woman, that this was hers by right in a marriage scenario. However, she actually, again, managed to pull herself out financially really pretty much intact. She lost Chatsworth, but other than that, she was pretty much intact. And I always find that last deal that she did with him really clever. That's pretty impressive. What do you say to that? Well, I think that perhaps surprised Shrewsbury. But I don't think it did surprise Bess was how many people took her side. I think he thought he had absolutely the, the moral high ground. But you get the Queen saying, you know, I'm not sure about that. And you get various other bishops and peers intervening. And indeed, Shrewsbury's own son siding with Bess rather than with his father. She's got backing. So her position, it's not as left field as, as it appears to be. And at one point, Shrewsbury's actually reminded by a bishop that his wife, that Bess has never been accused of adultery unless you commit adultery, then you are safe as a wife. If you don't let yourself, got somewhere to go to avoid trouble, a wife is not quite as unempowered a position in Elizabethan England as I think we might sometimes think. A poor wife, obviously, is in a very different position. But Bess is not a poor wife. She's got friends, she's got allies, she's got money, and she's got a safe house to go to. And she's absolutely, like you said at the beginning, maxed out her position. She's taken every opportunity to be the best in any position she could ever be. Therefore, when things happen, she's faultless she's squeaky clean almost and that again is just being very aware of your situation and always having hold of the rein you know, never really doing anything to your detriment because she's too clever for that so she manages to get out of she's building hardwick hall and she's doing that very independently again and manages to cut away from that whole scenario which could have brought her down and the whole fortune down but didn't she cleanly which i just find so impressive you know you said wasn't that clear cut there was a lot of letter writing going on Bess was writing to elizabeth and george talbot was writing to elizabeth and pleading for more money and this that, and the other but do you think that one of the reasons that beth was able to rise to power was the fact that at this point it was one of those exceptional times where women were the ruling gender do you think that it's partly because of the era that Bess was born into that she was able to rise as a woman in tudor times I think she gets lucky in Elizabeth because Elizabeth, well, like Bess, actually, Elizabeth has a bit of a reputation as a bitch, which is not really deserved. She didn't have many options with Mary, Queen of Scots. I don't know what else she could reasonably have done. It is true that she sometimes tries to prevent the marriage of her younger maids of honour, but then there could be arguments made for doing that as well. But she's very good to some women in particular. The Countess of Nottingham, her cousin and friend, that's a real genuine affectionate friendship and she supports best they recognize something in each other perhaps yes i think she did get lucky i mean it's an interesting comparison the next generation lady anne clifford who could have been a second best of hardwick she's got very much the background the, the temperament but she's got james the sixth and first absolutely against her and whatever she says is wrong i mean as far as james is concerned women just need to get back to the sewing or bess is getting back to the sewing but she's using it to send out a message and when james was told about a learned woman who could speak latin and greek he said but can she cook and that's all he cares about well elizabeth not that so i think yes bess is lucky in where she's positioned 
that's the pendulum swinging after Elizabeth this succession you know obviously she held off until her last breath but but Elizabeth I at the end of the day did pass the line on so I always think that the Mary Queen of Scots episode bothered her till her dying day definitely not clear-cut for her at all and actually doing nothing was her way of doing something and that's I always find that fascinating and the fact that they never met I always think the one thing that Mary wanted to do was Elizabeth and I think had they met we may have had a different end to the story and I think Mary knew that but I think Elizabeth knew that too because that's women in that scenario they're going to understand each other in a way that no other man could so we are now at the point where she's got Hardwick Hall our Bella pops up so in her latter years she orchestrates a marriage you mentioned earlier and our Bella is the product of that marriage her daughter Elizabeth passes away um, so our Bella's left with her grandma at Hardwick Hall in Arbella's mind imprisoned up there kept away from court which she thought was her right which actually may have been to protect her however in the end it just fueled that fire in Arbella which actually I think ended badly did you want to say a little bit more about that? She's such a tragic figure Arbella and at Hardwick there's a, a very poignant painting of her as a young child clutching a doll and a grown-up doll. I'm reading a very interesting article in a new book called Embroidering Her Truth about Mary Queen of Scots. I've got a brilliant chapter about the use of fashion dolls and I expect that the doll that Arbella is clutching is a fashion doll and may even represent a, an actual person. I'm not certain about that but it, it also encapsulates the kind of the woman she's going to grow up into and that woman's going to have a very unhappy life and I've said I know it's very difficult to go back and diagnose people retrospectively but it often has been suggested that Arbella was suffering from porphyria which seems to have been the thing that afflicted George III and certainly her behaviour is unstable and if you read Arbella's letters she was very highly educated but some of those letters are, and some of them do sound hysterical and I'm sorry to say so I think it must have been a very difficult and unhappy time completely ignorant and incredibly difficult to follow who's doing what to whom for everyone concerned you know whenever I look at that picture of Bella I feel so sorry for her but I think it must also have been difficult for Bess to be the guardian to someone in that position and at that time of her life as well having been through so much with the family and still ongoing you know there was still estrangements but I think she mellowed as you do it, she'd made up with one of the daughters am I right is it Mary? Well Mary after Beth died Mary's husband Gilbert Talbot said he, he couldn't believe how upset Mary was by the death of her mother there had been quarrels and there'd been scenes but she just seemed to have been very much saddened by it and there must have been some kind of bond still even at the times of greatest difficulty yeah I think this best if nothing she invoked emotion in people because she was such a strong character and so pivotal in their world so we touched a little bit on the fact that this was a moment in history where women where things slightly changed, or at least changed for a period of time, even if it changed back when, when the next king took to the throne. But in context of Arbella and that whole episode, that marriage was orchestrated dynastically, even if you don't think that the plan was to ever have Arbella become queen, which she very legitimately had claimed to. And at one point, they really did think that was going to happen. If that's not necessarily the aim, what do you think Bess's idea of her legacy was? What do you think she was striving for as far as when she was alive in her period? And then we can talk a little bit about today what we think her legacy is a peerage for her second son and when I think there's two things that she wanted very badly and actually she pretty much got them both and the first was uh, to leave Hardwick Hall as it was and in her will she says don't mess with Hardwick Hall leave everything where it is and by a most extraordinary uh, set of coincidences that did happen and actually one of the reasons that happened was because of the second thing she wanted which was in the 17th century Jane Cavendish who I've already mentioned she writes this reproachful poem uh, to Bess of Hardwick saying you picked the wrong horse you should have gone for 
my grandfather, Charles, instead you went for William the middle son. So Henry's my bad son, Charles Cavendish, the third son, he threw in his lot very early on with his sister Mary and her husband Gilbert Talbot, and he was best friends with Gilbert Talbot, and she fell out with them, so she also fell out with Charles. But William the middle son could do no wrong as far as Bess was concerned. And in fact, when Arbella Stuart goes to London in the reign of King James and James says, I'll give you a peerage for someone if you'd like it. Arbella showing judgment for one of the few times in her life said, oh, I think I'll have that for my uncle William, because she knew that would please Bess. And it did. So William gets set on the ladder. And I think that's the thing she would be most pleased by that William's descendants still now sit in Chatsworth and relatively near us is a garden centre called the Dukeries. And it's called that because that whole area of Nottinghamshire is the Dukeries. They're all Bess's descendants, all those Dukes, but the Duke she'd certainly have been most pleased about is the Duke of Devonshire, that William's family should rise to glory and that they're still there. And that Chatsworth is still, you know, one of the, the gems of the area. Absolutely. And the Devonshires, there's a lot to talk about them alone, just that line. You've got Georgiana and then you've got um, Debo, who was the Duchess that said to Mary Lavelle when she was there studying for, uh, I think, a book on the Churchills. She said, you know, you really should be studying best. And at that point, so it was down to Debo's, you know, push to say someone needs to write about this woman. And, And by the way, here, look at all of the archives that we have. So there you go. Another woman recognizing what this woman had done historically but no one had really put it on paper okay so one of the things that you've done is looked at Bess's life and argued a different take on it I always look for anything Bess of Hardwick and if I hear that name my ears prick up and obviously the latest Mary Queen of Scots film yeah there's you know it took liberties it made very stylized choices when it came to the visual Hardwick Hall is in there but it's kind of alluded to as if it's one of Elizabeth's palaces they filmed a lot there which Yep, that's kind of annoying because obviously Bess is remembered for Hardwick Hall and it's very distinctive the way it looks, the the rhyme, Hardwick Hall, more windows than wall. And, and, you know, people know about Hardwick, so it was taken out of context. But it looked beautiful, I have to say. And, And once you get over kind of some of these liberties that they took, I enjoyed the film, but I think I had quite low expectations because I was, you know, worried about the, the kind of things that they decided to put in. For example, that Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth actually met, which obviously everyone knows that was pivotal they never did meet but Bess is in there and I thought okay here we go here's a modern take let's see what they do with Bess and again they didn't really feature her at all lines to speak of they I mean she looks very nice but she doesn't have anything to say and they took her house and made it Elizabeth so you know I just do you know what though all it does is it makes me even more determined I have written a script pilot script because I think that this life in itself it's at least five series long. I mean, you take each marriage as a, a season and then you can continue on, like you say, with Arbella and then the Dukeries. And you've got the best soap opera and it's sultry. You don't actually have to make anything up because it's all there. What do you think is the importance of talking about best today? What do you think it's important that we acknowledge as someone who's been endlessly inspired by her? What do you say her legacy is now? I think one of the really interesting things about Bess is that she doesn't fail and in some ways I actually think she's been the victim of her own success because she has been overshadowed she's not as fated as some other women of the period and I I was uh, doing a a different talk about Bess to a different audience and somebody asked me a question which surprised me very much which was uh, so what do you think caused her downfall and I blinked a bit and I said she didn't have a downfall and I almost got a sense of kind of disappointment what no downfall that's a bit of a shame don't you think and it's 
you know, there's no dramatic beheading scene. There's no ghost shrieking along the corridors of Hampton Court begging to be listened to. She she lives and she dies quietly in her bed at a very decent old age and she doesn't fail. I actually think that's partly why she hasn't caught on in the same way, because it's almost as though a woman of that period has to have a downfall. And the more dramatic and spectacular, the better. For me, the importance that she teaches, you don't have to fail. You can survive and thrive and people should pinpoint that. Yeah, Madonna always says the thing that she did that she shouldn't have done was live and survive and carry on doing what she does and never stop. And that's what people don't forgive you for. You're supposed to crash and burn. You're supposed to have a tragic end to the story. And as a woman who has pioneered and trailblazed there's supposed to be some sort of reckoning and that never was like you say she just was very clever and actually like we said even though we're talking about her now and we believe that she should be talked about more her skill also was knowing when not to to make a fuss and knowing when to fly under the radar and just do what you do and do it well I agree she's not talked about enough but I think we're changing that she's someone who I think resonates a lot with women today and, and I think as a survivor and as someone who not only survived but thrived, she should definitely be talked about more. And we're going to be pioneers for that. I've always felt like Elizabeth I and Bess are kind of two flip sides of a coin because she had a long life as well. And they kind of, they, they really, their lives really did run in parallel. Age, and obviously you've got someone who married four times, whereas Elizabeth was Gloriana and, and the Virgin Queen. But they're both very pragmatic women of their time who were very clever about speaking up when they needed to and saying nothing when they needed to. They just were very clever at using the cards they were dealt with. I always think that I look at Bess as a self-made queen of the North as opposed to Elizabeth, royal-born queen. Do you think that they recognised each other? And you mentioned it a little bit earlier. I think certainly uh, they respect each other. I think they viewed, each of them viewed the other as a, as a capable figure. And not many people looked at women and thought about what they could do. They were very big on looking at women and thinking about what they couldn't do. But I think... That, that's the real thing that binds them together, is that they both understand that each other as an agent, as somebody intelligent and capable uh, with a view on the world. I agree. Did you ever see, and I've never seen it and I'm trying to get hold of a copy, did you ever see the 1970s series Mistress of Hardwick? No, not consciously. So I went to, uh, I was around in the 1970s, obviously, but I went to boarding school and we weren't allowed to watch television uh, oh. in the week. Uh, so I, I, that's how I managed to miss out on it. I, I don't think you can get hold of it. I've been trying and I just can't. I got the, the accompanying BBC book about it. At that point, there was uh, the Glenda Jackson adaptation about Elizabeth I that was really successful based on the plays. So I just wondered that maybe the 70s, there was a kind of an era where, again, people were looking at women and what, what they'd done in that kind of vein. But I haven't been able to find it. It'd be great if anyone's got it out there, a copy of that or a way to, to watch it, because it's not on YouTube. So it would be very interesting to see how she was portrayed mm. in that. So a couple of lighthearted questions, if that's all right. Obviously, she's a hero of mine, and I hold her in very high esteem, as do you. If she was an actual superhero, what do you think her superpower would be? What's Bess of Hardwick's superpower? Making people do what she wanted them to. So there's that brilliant story about when, she, when she's a very old lady, my bad son Henry turns up to rescue our Bella, and you He's outside, he's got armed men. Arbella's inside. You can't defend Hardwick Hall. I mean, it's you know, more glass than wall. And Bess just walks up and she stops Arbella from going out and she stops Henry from coming in by sheer force of willpower. And I just think, go Bess. 
formidable. And it reminds me of my own mother. She would laugh at the similar, but there were times as a child that my mum would see a fight in the street. And I remember it very vividly. And she would walk in between the kids, pick them up and go, right, you go that way, you go that way. And there's something very powerful about a woman who just takes no BS. Like that's the way it's going to be. And people listen. Authority. That's what it is. I love that. So basically people do what she wants them to do. Great. And is there a favourite anecdote about Bess that you could tell us? Well, one of the things that always interests me is she designs this enormous series of hangings of noble women. And one of them is Cleopatra. Not everybody thought Cleopatra was a, a virtuous and noble woman, but Bess does. And then in the next century, her two great granddaughters, Jane Cavendish, Elizabeth Brackley, they are besieged in Welbeck Abbey by parliamentarians and they wrote a play. And, and it's in a really amazing play. And it's got lots of astonishing lines in, like, we have been brought up in the creation of good languages, which will make us ever ourselves. But at one point, one girl says to the other, how did you manage when you were brought before the parliamentarian commander? How could you cope with that? And the other says, I practised Cleopatra when she was in her captivity. And that, to me, that Bess is the woman who puts Cleopatra up on the wall and who inspires her great granddaughters to resist a parliamentarian army by practising Cleopatra in her captivity. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. I'm so glad I asked you that question. That's a tapestry, is it, that she created? It's it's a hanging, yes. So there's a a series of uh, important women. And one of them is Penelope, who happens to look really quite remarkably like Bess because Penelope is the, the, the figure on whom Bess models herself. And you know, the really interesting thing about Penelope, we remember her for, for needlework, for sewing and unsewing frantically every night to stave off. But oh, she's also a woman who manages without a husband for 20 years because her husband, Odysseus, goes off to the Trojan War for 10 years and unfortunately takes 10 years to come home again at the end of it. That's the Iliad and the Odyssey. And Penelope is just fine, thank you, all that time by herself. There you go. See, it's all there. Everything you ever need to know is all in the needlework, isn't it? You just got to learn to decipher it. That's amazing. Uh, well, thank you for that, because that actually ends us on a really perfect note, because this is what we're doing. We're putting those women in history back in the books and talking about them so that everyone else knows about them, too. And Bess was doing it back then. People like Virginia Woolf, who were talk- talking about the fact that we've got to shine a light on what everyone's doing so that the next generation can learn and be inspired and create more amazing work. So. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yes, like I say, my favourite subject in the world, but you've told me quite a few things that I didn't know. So thank you so much for doing that and sharing your knowledge. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.